Hey there, rock and roll podcast fans. This is Mike Hoban. Welcome to Rat Tales, the podcast that brings you the music and stories of the Boston rock scene that grew out of the mid-70s at the Rat and some of the other hellhole joints, each with their own sick charm. Hey, Barry, welcome to Rat Tales. Thank you. How are you doing? <laughs> good, good. I'm really glad you're here today. I spent a lot of time uh, going back over uh, on YouTube the last few nights, checking out um, the old Marshall stuff and then some of the stuff when you did with uh, uh, the Rockin' Robins, too. So um, what we usually do on this show is, uh, you know, like I said, we're trying to, like, establish a kind of a what it was like during the 70s. But we always like to know where the artists come from. So uh, we do something that's kind of like a rockalogue where uh, we let people know where they come from, and it's like, so I mean, like where the people come from uh, musically, um, and also, you know, where you background. come from. Yeah. And just do the background, so just, uh, yes, yeah. just jump right in. Uh, 
Um, so what did you listen? I mean, one of the things we what did you listen to growing up? What was it like when you're growing up? And 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 well, I, I actually I actually uh, I, li- I lived in the city when I was really young in the fifties. Um, I'm I'm a fifties kid, um, um, and you know saw some of the original Elvis on TV and stuff like that in real time. Um, my mother was a fan of Elvis, so she uh, you know even though I, when Elvis hit television, I would have been about five years old and or six years old. Um, but my mother w- would have let me stay up for that because she liked him. Um, it, it, and uh, we lived uh, it, for a while in the Bromley Heath Projects in Jamaica Plain. I know those. We were, yeah. that was, that, uh, I found out years later that was the first integrated public housing in the city of Boston. And we moved in right when they integrated uh, and when they were new. Um, and um, so... Uh, we typically, my mother would typically buy records in Dudley, which Dudley Square, which was only about you know less than a ten minute walk from Bromley Heath. So I remember going to record stores when I was very young, at five years old, uh, six years old, seven years old, um, and 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 there were completely black folks record stores. So it, 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 you know, my mother was enough into black music that she would buy some, you know, some of that stuff. Um, like she might have tended to like the doo-wop groups more, you know. Yep. Um, then maybe Little Richard, you know, <laughs> Little Richard might have scared my mother. Um, well, my mother was pretty hip musically. I Richard, think it, Little it, Richard scared a lot of white people. In her early own way, on. she was hip. <laughs> um, she she played piano and she could sing, and she did. She never professionally sang, but she sort of sort of borderline amateur, uh, semi-professional. And she was in choral groups that performed in public and stuff at least. Um, and so she knew how to sing harmony. So she would teach, and this goes for at least one of my sisters and two of my brothers too she would she would learn us we can, i came from a family of eight so that's quite a bit quite a quite a range of ages and quite a which actually helped in band days because we'd have two or three generations of kids that we could appeal to when we were playing gigs um but anyway um so my mother would sing a song and 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 teach me the melody and she did this with the other kids too, but teach me the melody, and then she'd harmonize to it um, in, in, in a simple harmony, and then she'd get me to do the harmony, and she'd sing the melody. So I kind of learned harmony from an early age, I feel like. And that ended up being really a huge part of the Marshalls. It uh, did, that's, actually. You guys harmonized it, so it's like Beach and we do have a brother. Almost. We definitely have a brother sound, for sure, and a brother and sister sound, too, because yep. my youngest sister, Ellie, who was like nine years younger than me, at a, at a point, once she she started sitting in with us when she was in high school and we were playing the Rat, she sat in with us at the Rat a few times, but she didn't officially join the band until like '79, late '79, and 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 played with us uh, from the era of late '79 to '81, and then we sort of stopped playing. We never really broke up, but we sort of stopped playing. And, and she went on the road with Jonathan Richmond in '81, and I and and I went on to do my own front you know front my own band completely and 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 i called barry marshall and the rock and robbins which basically started in 83 but 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 i you know was writing the songs for that and stuff between 81 and 83 so so the marshalls really were around seriously from 75 to 81 so let's back up even a little more though so i know that you played in you said you played in a band that gigged all the time a cover band called the fugitives i guess all the way back in situate yeah Um, this is uh, uh, when i when i lived in situate from when i was nine um, in high school, I got in a band called The Fugitives, which was kind of the best band in town. And, I, and, and as as I was playing around in the summer of 67... How old were you then? 
16. Okay. So I joined them um, in, in, in like spring of 1967, which is, looking back, I can't imagine a better time to get in the band, you know? So, and, and we were not an original band. We, co- we did covers. We sometimes did our own version of covers, but sometimes we just copied the record as close as we could. Um, and, uh, but I remember thinking at one point, we were probably the best band for about five towns around. We were good enough to be playing both college mixers, which none of us were over. Like, I think the oldest person was 17, um, and I was 16, and the drummer was probably 14. And we were playing college mixers and in the city, and we were playing bars, um, which was really? not that simple. And that's, that's so long ago that it was 21 drinking. Yeah, I was going to say, the drinking age the wasn't drinking 18 age yet. That was until the 70s. Yeah. In about 1972 or 73, it yep. changed to 18. So, so, so I preceded the drinking age. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, 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 and wouldn't you know my luck? I think the drinking age changed right about when I turned 21 in, 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 in 72. I, I had just turned 21 like three months before that. Um, and, and, and then, of course, the, I, I also, I also pl- was playing through the disastrous time of when they raised it back up because that – I, I think almost overnight, that happened in like 82 or 83, and I think almost overnight, audiences were cut in half overnight oh, yeah. for, for, for so many bands that played all these clubs, the rat, all the Boston clubs uh, struggled at that point. Not like they're struggling now, of course. It's, it, now it's a whole nother level of struggle. But anyway, anyway, so yeah, I was playing in a hot shit high school band. Um, a- after after I got kicked out of that band, uh, so how'd you get kicked out? Why'd you get be- kicked out of the band? Because they brought the. Br- <laughs> you got to tell the, the truth, Ellen. This is so a very truth based show. The lead, the lead <laughs> singer of the band originally was the brother of the drummer, the lead so- singer and and rhythm guitarist, and then he came back. Uh, so I replaced him. Then a year later, he got him. His brother brought him back into the fold. It wasn't. I don't think it was anything to do with me fucking up or anything. Okay. Excuse my language, but no, screwing up. Oh, we can swear in the show. Okay, but anyway, uh, I mean, I'm friends with those guys to this day. So you know, and they both still play to this day too. Really? Interestingly, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I got in another band. I was in another band called the Crossroads for about a year um, until just about until I graduated from high school. And graduated from high school in 69, went to college. Still played, but mostly just played kind of folk and, 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 and on my own and with other, one or two other people, not professionally. I got out of college in 74. Where'd you go to college? Uh, UMass. What'd you do there? Uh, psychology major. <laughs> Which it wasn't until years later that I realized I really helped to prepare for my career as a record producer. <laughs> a lot of what I've done is as a record producer. So today when I talk to people about music, I often will say I'm a record producer and a songwriter performer, you know, um, you know, but, but producing is a big part of my professional musical identity for sure. Um, I still produce probably average producing a couple albums a year. Um, but at one point I was up to about five or six a year. Um, and, and I did, you know, I did produce songs and movie soundtracks. I of course produced some Laverne Baker stuff. I I produced plenty of great acts. The most common act that I've worked with, um, that I've done several albums with now, is the Montgomerys or the Irresponsibles, those two bands. But I produced hit records in, with an artist named Danny Silva in Portugal, yeah. great Cape Verdean artist. I've done two albums with him. Both of them were hits there. Um, and I've done records in, uh, let's see, I've done records that, where, where the, the artists were from Panama and we toured all over Central America. I've done all kinds of things like that. 
all great fun and learning every time I do a, a record like that I really learn a lot you know because you, you, you branch into other genres of music and you really learn and you did a Christmas album with a bunch of rockers and well, was it like did, 82 or something two, like that I no did, 92 wasn't it I did three Christmas albums oh, okay because I listened <laughs> I to one the other did. day Amy it was Amy Mann and Barrett's yeah, and yeah, Whitfield yeah. and the Peter Savages Wolf, and yep. Peter Wolf and uh, the Nervous Eaters or oh, maybe I'm mixing Neighborhoods yeah, yeah. So yep. was that like the that was the early '80s when you did that? I did. Or? I did. So it's a long story, but let me tell it quick. Um, we started doing a Christmas show in 1983. Um, um, that and ultimately I, we did it just for fun, and we backed up. When I say we, I mean Barry Marshall and the Rock and Rollers and our band backed up most of the singers that performed in it, but a lot of singers from all over different bands of Boston, like the Del Fuegos played it, like all kinds of people did it. Um, so we did this Christmas show at Spit, the club Spit. Oh, I remember Spit. I love in Spit. In 83. And then in 84, BCN really got into it and really thought the show was great. So in 84, they they got behind it, and, and we did it at the Metro, and we did a daytime lunchtime show at the Metro for it, too. And that, that daytime show was live on BCN. And then the next year, David Bieber, the creative services director of BCN, who's a brilliant guy, he's still around, um, he ended up working for FNX for years and the Phoenix and all that other stuff. He has David Bieber archives today. Um, but anyway, he he had the idea of doing a, a Christmas album, but it was cassette only. Yeah. In, it tells you the era, 1985. So we started doing uh, recording Christmas songs, and anybody anybody that we approached could pick their own song. And we did it as benefits. We did it for Toys for Tots. We did it for various different different uh, charities over the years we did it in 85 we did it in 86 we did it in 92 and um you mentioned some of the acts that were on it uh, also uh of course uh we did a marshall's track on it I did some of my own tracks on it. Um, my sister did a track on it. And this was uh, original material, not just covers of... Yeah, we, we wrote all the songs. The Marshalls wrote the songs we did, yeah. Okay. Um, and what about uh, the other acts, they? Uh Some of them... Uh, P Peter Wolf did a, did, a, did a kind of blues, if you can imagine, a, a, sort of an acoustic blues version of Silent Night. That's what wow. he did. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round young virgin mother and child, holy infant so Sleep in hell. 
did uh did uh you know ch uh the christmas song chestnuts roasting on an open fire written by mel torme and yeah. bob Wells. when he was like 14 or something like that yeah that, so that that uh and i think she ended up putting that on one of her own albums she did yeah she does a beautiful yeah. version of that or she's the same she version. has a version i've, I've heard her it's do the same, it so. i'm pretty sure it's the same version we did it at q division oh cool chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe can help to make the season bright Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow Will find it hard to sleep tonight You know, we should probably bring it back a little too Let's get back on like more of a chronological track sure. Just so people sure. don't get too lost so, so when we started playing original music in 1975, no, Marshalls. no, okay, no, but before the Marshalls, there was, um, so it, from what I understand, so you went, where do you go from the fugitives, you get out of college, and that's where we left it off, so we, yeah, so we started playing with my brothers, okay, in 74, um, and, and we started playing gigs, the first gig, I think it was January of 75, and check out the first gig, sit you at high school, dance, my younger sisters were in high school then, sit you at high school, dance, and Jonathan Richmond played about a probably about a half hour set with us. Jonathan Richmond at his peak of rock and roll guitar yep. too. I had a fabulous gig with him actually. And we had links to him over the years. We were friends with him and, and my sister ended up being very, very good friends with him and touring with him you know, all over Europe and stuff in the 80s. I just toured with them several times. I just saw a little documentary and they were talking about, I think it's called Dancing in the Streets, No Fun. It's just like an hour long. And when they start talking about the punk and how it started, they start with Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. And yep. I mean, they, I mean they, you know, there's always the dolls and stuff like that too, but they talk about when it really started to form. And it's funny how often he come up when we were uh, talking to the guys from uh, J.J. Rassler from DMZ. And oh some yeah, other all people. the Boston local uh, people all, knew all, about Jonathan. All, yeah. yeah. And, and they all were influenced in some ways by him. Um, and and um, we actually did a recording with him, one of the Marshall songs. He plays lead guitar on it. Okay. Wild. Very garagey sounding record. Uh, School is out. Oh, yeah, you can tell. It's very garagey sounding. Yeah, That's I was going to say that, that, that because it's not consistent with some of the other Marshall stuff I heard. Yeah. I go, wow, you really start it's to, a little um, different. Yeah. to rock it up a little here versus the, the more uh, poppy sound of yeah, uh, the Yeah, I mean, Marshalls. that's probably my push, you know, to do that. Yeah. Know?
but anyway, uh, so in 75, we decided the three brothers, my two brothers had graduated from high school in 73, um, and, and I had graduated from college in 73. So uh, the, the three of us decided to have a band together at that point um, and, and do original music. And we all wrote, we all sang, we all argued about every song. <laughs> but we all usually had backup vocals on most songs, too. Um, and I would say, you know, we definitely did have a, a, a sort of pretty self-consciously a 60s sound. We, we were going for sort of the mid-60s, I don't know, kind of halfway between the kinks and the beach boys and, and, and the Beatles, you know, around that era. You can really, hear, um, I mean, all the harmonies that are in there, you can definitely hear yeah. the influences. And that's, I, I, you know, when I, when I, knowing I was, knowing when you were, uh, when the Marshalls were around and then listening to the, um, songs on YouTube, I'm there like, this is like the wrong era. And then I was like double checking to see yeah. if you actually did it in the sixties. Cause it's so sixties based. It's so yeah. that's well, that was our late seventies sound for sure. Yeah. Um, so, but before you started the Marshalls, so you started the Marshalls oh, oh, in the so, early seventies. So simultaneous to the Marshalls, I was in a band in New York called Monk. Okay. So with yeah, Jonathan Paley and a guy named Steve Warren with the Paley Grace. brothers. Yep. Okay. So, I, oh, and by the way, this is another whole little angle on the story, but I was also very good friends with, preceding this, I was, in 72, I met Andy Paley, um, and I became very good friends with him, and I, and I used to go to all the Sidewinders, he had a group called the Sidewinders, I used to go to the Sidewinders gigs, and Billy Squire was in the Sidewinders at one, uh, for about two years, so at one point, one of my minor claims to fame is, I, I was sort of a roadie. I didn't consider myself a roadie, but occasion, very occasionally turned into more than occasionally. I would be helping them carry their equipment in and out of the pla uh, places. And where is this? Is in New York? Um, around Boston. Around Boston. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in fact, we did a show in Nantucket that was almost like a road trip because you have to do the whole long ferry. Oh yeah. Three and a half hour ferry. But anyway, uh, so I, I I I helped Billy Squire set up his amp a few times. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and and, and uh, but I learned a lot from just being around that band a lot because I learned about the songwriting process and I learned about the a little bit about the recording process in that era but mostly I was the sidewinders about, you mean about having a about how to have a band and how, how to be a, a good songwriter for a band yeah so um, when so when we first started um, recording in 77 I got Andy Andy and Arthur Baker to produce us. Both of them went on to become fairly famous producers. Arthur Baker ended up doing New Order and all that stuff, um, and a lot of classic stuff actually. Um, and he was Arthur Baker was one of the biggest producers of the '80s. I mean, he did the I'm 12 inches. I'm a big inch, fan of New Order. He did the 12 inches mixes for Springsteen and Cyndi Lauper oh, and everything. Okay. You know, all all those kind of records. But anyway, one of the first records the he ever did was with us. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and Andy and, Andy and him did, uh, produced us on, on uh, six songs uh, in, in, in 77. We recorded at Intermedia Sound, which was the predecessor studio uh, that became Synchro Sound that the cars, the cars bought. Okay, so you guys, so you're hanging out with the Paley brothers and the Sidewinders, actually. Yeah. In the, and this is in Boston. Yeah. And then, so um, you're kind of learning the thing, and simultaneously, you and your brothers are... Start writing start, songs. Start writing songs, yeah. but you're not necessarily gigging. And so how does this all fit in? And then Mong, you said it was about a year long that you did that? Uh, yeah, actually about seven months in, in New York. It at, at, mostly played CBGB's and a, a club called Maxis, Kansas City. Uh, and we, we played probably, I, bet, I think we played CB's more than 30 times. 
and I think we played Max's about four times in that era. Um, and, and we played a couple of other oddball clubs, like On the Rocks, ones I can bear, half, only halfway remember. But in, in, that, in, the, in that era, you know, it was kind of a walk in the wild side for me, too, because we were playing like, like bars run, uh, you know, that were lesbian bars that had rock and roll. Yep. Bars by, by, it was a whole new, you know, a whole new aspect of life that I was seeing right. at, at that point. In New Especially York. in the early 70s, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. Uh, so, we start recording. We, we started playing clubs like the Rat by 76. So, no. So, I just wanted to just the Mong stuff. So let's oh, the talk, Mong stuff. Let's, let's we never recorded. That. We played a whole bunch of gigs in a short amount of time. And, and I really enjoyed the experience. And I ended up hanging out with the Talking Heads and stuff and getting to know them so, a, a bit in that era. And, and, and you know, played gigs. with, with uh, we, we opened for television a whole bunch of times. Yep. And keep in mind, in CBGB's in 1976, every th- it would, it, it, the headliner would do Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, and, and so if you're opening for them, which we were for television, which is one of the big headliners of CBGB's at that point, it would be two shows a night. So our first set opening would be about 11 o'clock, and their first <laughs> set in the, in the first show would be about 12.30, get over by about 2. We'd go on at 2.15 for our second show. They'd go on at 3.15 or 3.30 for the, their second show. Wow. That's, that was the, the time frame of those shows. But uh, we did that quite a bit. We also were, uh, uh, opened up several times, probably about, I think, about six or nine times. I can't remember because it, it would have been in three-night blocks. Yeah. We, we, we played at least six, maybe nine shows with the Heartbreakers, two Johnny Thunders and um, Jerry Nolan from the New York Dolls. Yeah, the Dolls. And, and uh, you know, I got my drum set stolen outside of Max's Kansas City at one of those gigs. So Jerry Nolan nicely for the next couple of, couple of nights um, at Max's, we were playing with them. And, and, and we, he let me use his drums. And, uh, for, for, so I played that pink drum set that's on the cover of the New York Dolls album. Oh, cool. If you, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I have the album. He, he tuned the drums very low. So, and so, so I was almost getting lost when I would slam on the toms. I couldn't do heavy, fast rolls. You know, I mean, it, There couldn't have been a more opposite sound on drums than, than, than uh, Jerry Nolan and Billy Ficker of television. And Billy Ficker... To, tuned his drums like a jazz drummer, really tight snare, and 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 and, I mean he could have been a jazz. I think he might. It's have a lot been. more complex music, television versus yeah, the Yeah, I mean dolls, it's a different so, yeah. thing. It's a different thing. No, and and no, you know I don't mean any insult at all to Jerry no, Nolan isn't. by saying that, but 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 his sound was thumps. You know, you know, that's what he did. Um, he was. A, I actually thought he was a very nice guy. I wasn't. I wasn't a big fan of Johnny. Uh, and I didn't interact with him much, but Jerry Nolan, I did interact with quite a bit, and I thought he was a pretty nice guy. Yep. Um, they both, of course, came to fairly young, tragic endings. I know. Um, which, you know, that's another thing you learn from the uh, playing in, 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 in music, period. You, you know, if you're really in the music world, you know, you, you know a lot of people have short lives. Not, not always, of course, but, you know, the, the, uh, more than the general population. Booze, drugs, rock and roll. They're, yeah, let's. They're all part, together. Part happens. Um, but anyway, I was fortunate in that I had my drug period when I was a teenager, so I was out of drugs by the time I went to Woodstock. I mean, oh. I, I had quit drugs by 1969, so by the time I was 18, I quit drugs. So, so at least you didn't eat the brown acid when you were yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I avoided all the cocaine hell and all the, all the bad drugs that came in, in those later years. Um, uh, cocaine, particularly in the 80s. You know? Right. Um, anyway, so the Marshalls had... Uh, it, so Mong had a short run. 
but we got a lot of attention, and, and we did get written up in, in New York. You know, we, we were in this, I think we are in the second issue of Punk Magazine. We had an article about us. Were you guys, what was your sound like? Uh, kind of halfway between the Sidewinders and, Sidewinders and Punk Rock. <laughs> we did some of Andy's songs from the Sidewinders that Jonathan uh, loved and I loved too. Um, and, and, they, and, and we did, I, I don't know if we, we probably did one or two songs that ended up being done by the Paley Brothers, I think. Do you have any recordings by Mong? Or a do very, you... very rough on audio cassette that I would not play for anybody, but, but they're funny to listen to. Do the Paley Brothers have a... Or, I'm not the, the, Paley, the Sidewinders, did they have you... Oh, they had an album. They were on RCA Records. But yeah. do they have the songs that you guys did in Mong? Um, I think that one or two of those songs we would have done, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, and I'm just trying to think. The Billy Squire version of, of, of the Sidewinders didn't make an album that's he joined after the that, that first album but they recorded a few songs and one of them came out on this album that i made with eric lingren of a bunch of different boston bands called the boston incest album it, it, it it's not a bad title it's just a, it was the incestuous scene of boston musicians playing on each other's records etc cetera, etc cetera. so um it, that has a cut by the sidewinders that, that i managed to get andy to get, give give us for that oh good maybe we can um, uh, it's called streetwalker it's a great song okay and I think that has both the Eric Ro Rosenfeld and Billy Squire version. So they, uh, they, they almost sounded like the Yardbirds at times when it was Eric Rosenfeld and Billy, Billy, uh, just blanked on Squire. His, Billy Squire. <laughs> I just blanked on his name, talking so much. Um, so Billy Squire, yeah. Th so they both played guitar. But then Eric left after about three months. But, but Streetwalker, that's, that, that, that had that version of the band. Um, anyway. All these bands were great, great and, and, and good in memory. So then what, um, what happened with Mong? Did you just did it like... Uh, it, basically, know. Jonathan you know, and Andy had decided they are going to go for the record deal as the Paley Brothers, and that's why that ended. Um, I still had the Marshalls thing going on uh, yeah. all through that. And this time, of, you guys are just writing. Yeah. You're not, you're not really no, no, no. We were gigging by 75. We were gigging by 75. Up so, here in Boston. Yes, yes. So, and, and by the way, the Marshalls even played New York, too. Not all the time, like Mong did, but but we played Max's and like I think we played Max's in '78, and we played Hurrah, which was the, known as the first rock disco, <laughs> but Hurrah was a very hip club in 1979, so we played Hurrah too. I think we played one other place too, but anyway, those two gigs stand out to the Marshalls. Play. But we started playing the Rat in '76, and by '77 we were kind of a semi-regular opening act at the Rat. We never became a headliner at the Rat. We became a headliner at Cantones, which wasn't as difficult as the Rat to break. So what was, so So you guys, um, because your sound is so, let's talk about some of the songs that you guys did early on, because there's a real evolution. If you go, just from me being on YouTube last night, mm -hmm. I could see it. It starts like very poppy. Yeah. And then... Um, uh, yeah, very, very poppy, lots of harmonies, and mostly, you know, it sounds like younger guys, even though you're not that young, singing yeah. about cars and chicks yeah, and I would have been stuff 20, like that. When we first recorded, I would have been 26, but my brother Kevin would have been 21, and my brother Kenny would have been 22. Okay. So when we, that's when we first recorded. Like AM, was that, was that your first? AM would have been like 78, uh, it, it, so I would have been 27. And, and, and Kenny and Kevin would have been a year old, you know, 22 and 23. And AM is basically about driving around in your car, uh, listening to the radio. Yeah. And we wrote, uh, we, I mean, we did write songs that reflected kind of that lifestyle. We wrote, Kevin had a great song that we did called In My Car. In my car, tight. Oh, when we're cruising this or down tonight. 
a song called Cruising Alone. <laughs> yep, know? yep. I heard them both last about night. about when the girl dumps you and you're driving around <laughs> looking for more girl, other girls. Anyway, uh, yeah, we had our we had our thing. So, um, so when you start, so you start playing the Rat around '76. Who were you playing? Who were the other bands there? Because here's the thing: um, I'm trying to think of when. So when DMZ and Ready Teddy and all those bands are playing, played with Ready Teddy, yep, a couple times, and then not, not at the Rat, but actually, I, I, I did shows in situate at the Dreamwall with Ready Teddy. Okay, um, but we played with Willie. Willie actually in '75. The, uh, most people don't even remember this, but the first battle of the bands that, that I'm, I'm aware of in that scene, way, you know, a couple years preceding the, uh, the BCN Rumble, uh, there was a battle of the bands in 75 at the club in Cambridge, and Willie Alexander beat us. Really? <laughs> yeah. Talk about two different sounds, though. I mean, your sound is like you're very poppy, and when you think of like the rat, you yep. don't think of early Marshall's songs. I mean, you, you later on as your songwriting well, and, changed and, a little. You know, I'll say pl there were plenty of punk rockers in the scene that didn't dig us at all. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I and, and vice versa, there were, there were punk rockers I didn't think. Because I had already, at that point, I had already been at CBGB's and saw the legendary punk rockers over and over again right next to them. You, yeah. know, you, know, you know what I mean? So I probably saw the Ramones 20 times in that, in that 76 period, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, so I wasn't as knocked out by some of the punk rock bands of the rat as some people were but 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 i certainly i, I love the nervous eaters and i love the real kids i mean I, I was totally into those bands and of course i loved the cars as soon as they were playing there right um and 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 the cars you know they were not by no stretch punk rock they would they would no. you know by the time the cars were playing there all the time by 77 the term new wave had just come out and that sort of was how all the bands that weren't really punk that were playing the punk club would just refer to themselves as New Wave as a convenient tag um, to distinguish it. Um, so that's probably what we did too, you know. I, but, you know, the great thing was that all of, that, all of those strains of music that were happening could exist with original music in these clubs. That was very rare in that era, coming into that era. I mean, I remember very well the early 70s, 
it was very hard for even a great band like the Modern Lovers or the Sidewinders to get a lot of gigs because they, nobody cared about original music in the early 70s. They cared about blues and boogie. Yep. You know, that's what they called it. They called it boogie. You know? And covers, right? I mean, it's, I remember Mostly there was covers, a lot, yes. a lot of bands that, like, uh, even bars like Gladstones. I used so to you can't, you can't kid, yeah. exaggerate enough the importance of the rat and secondarily the, uh, the importance of Cantones in terms of establishing a place where nothing but original music. That's, and the same thing in New York, CBGBs and Maxes established uh, uh, the scene of original music being the, the only thing that mattered uh, in a sense. So, and the, and, the, and the concept of DIY came out of that world. So do it yourself, that concept I know it's, to some people it will sound insane that I'm saying this, but I, I teach this in class too. When I talk about why, why punk rock is important in the history of media, which I teach, it is punk rock established the idea of do-it-yourself. And, and, and that, that DIY do-it-yourself mentality has permeated the entire world. In almost every industry, there's a version of do-it-yourself. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like that. And that, that, that established that concept as a viable concept artistically for sure. And it, it's funny, uh, one of the things that I think is, as we do this show more and, and I, I learn more about it, even though I was there, I forget that people did three and four night stints. You know, you, you would do the rat for four the nights rat, in a same row. same thing, the cars played Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The Nervous Eaters played Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And they'd have an opening act for every, you know, they'd have two shows, opening act, all yep. the time. Um, so they'd do two, show, two sets a night. Each Man would do, and the open to get opening act for some of these people was great exposure. Oh yeah, you know both both in New York and in Boston, I learned that. You know, and Jim Harrell got two covers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right, Jim Harrell could do that. Um, you know, Jimmy Harrell. I I I I I love I don't the guy for a fact. That's I love uh, the guy, especially in retrospect. But yeah. at the time, I was arguing with him all the time, trying to get better gigs, and and and. He thought I was kind of probably kind of a pest, right? And so occasionally he'd throw a beer bottle at me from across the room. Wow! As a joke, he'd never hit me, but yeah. but he'd throw a beer bottle at me, right? That kind of place. And, and then and then of course he'd buy me a beer later in the night, <laughs> and, and and we had a somewhat contentious relationship. But for years afterwards, I'd, I'd occasionally play like I played there in '86 or '87 when I played for Rick James. I specifically set up a gig to do that, to play for Rick James, because he wanted to sign me to his production company, which was a big deal at the time. Um, it's hard for people to distinguish, you know, the, most of people's memories of Rick James today in popular culture is that he was a druggie and, and he was crazy. Oh, Rick James but was great. Rick James was a, was a super talent, and he was, he was he, I mean, he was, it was like Michael Jackson, Prince, and Rick James, number three. Didn't didn't Rick James play in a band with Neil Young at he did, one point in the sixties okay. called the, the Minor Birds? They got okay. signed to Motown. Yep, in about seventy, about sixty-seven or sixty-six, sixty-six. I think they got signed to Motown before Buffalo Springfield. But, but anyway, um, let me get back to the Rick James story. So what I'm trying to express about the, the great thing about those clubs like the Rat and Cantones and the club in Cambridge did it too, is they 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 fostered. A culture of original music and they helped to foster the whole idea of do-it-yourself you didn't have to be a super pro you didn't have to have practiced scales on guitar for years you didn't have to have gone to berkeley to be in a band i mean nothing against berkeley because i ended up teaching there and everything years later but you didn't have to go to a music school to be in a band you just had to do it you had to have the courage and wherewithal and, and 
creativity to come up with something. That's what Richie Parsons and Tom White were telling us when we talked to them. Um, yep. They said, like, we didn't really know how to play that well, but we got to, you know, their first, one of their first, like, real professional gigs was Skin yep. Tones. Um, and they said they just go in there and just slammed and just played, you know. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, they weren't they weren't very good uh, music musically. Sometimes at the time. you know you know you, you can't be carried strictly on the adrenaline. You have to have some pr- preparation and some 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 plan and some idea what you're going to do. But the adrenaline takes you pretty far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially back then. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So anyway. It was uh, coming my, out my, of an era of really heavily produced music, too. I mean, you yeah. think of, like, we talk about this a lot, like the the Foreigners. I always use Foreigners, my whipping boy band, um, of just, like, kind of sterile rock and roll that really kind of sucked. That didn't have, I mean, it, it was, I'm not saying that, you know, Lou Graham's not a great songwriter in a lot of ways, but it's just, like, it has zero appeal to me from, like, a real creative standpoint, you know? Yeah, what, you know, different different strokes. For yeah. Different, yeah. Um, I, I, well, so I was going to finish the story about Jimmy Harold. So, oh. so Jimmy Harold. We had a somewhat contentious relationship for a couple of years. But in some ways, I was happy he even knew who I was, you know, because that meant we were at at least some level of success there that he would even take my phone call and and, and argue with me about a booking. Uh, You know, so we he did book us there Um, and 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 we did we started to do pretty well there. I remember at one point we were playing with Robin Lane and the Chartbusters, who were a big headliner by, by 79. Yep. Their thing was really going strong. They were just about to get signed and everything. And um, we played this Live at the Rat, um, Volume 2, which, unfortunately, it's, it's a whole long, tragic story. And, and, and tragic in that the main guy that recorded it ended up dying. Um, um, in, in, uh, he was found... He was, I don't even know if he was ever found. He he went missing in Brazil. He, I think he fell off a, a, a mountainside. And who was that? Bill Reisman. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was his name, I okay. think. I shouldn't say that unless I'm positive yeah. of the name. Um, but anyway, we did. Uh, we were doing well enough by 79 that, that we were on the Live at the Rat Volume 2 along with Robin Lane and, and along with a whole bunch of other racks too. We were just a little too late for Volume One, which Volume One came out pretty early. I think it came out in late '76 or something. Yep. Yeah, and, and so we we had only played the Rat a couple of times in '76, so we weren't even a regular opening act at the Rat in '76. But by '77 we were, and by '79 we were close to getting to be a headliner. Like we could have had he he offered us headlining nights on Monday or Tuesday, but yep. we, I, I don't think we ended up doing it at the time. Um, but but any anyway. We were on, we were recorded on on live at the Rat Volume Two. I, I I heard the stuff afterwards and it sounded. I, I was totally thrilled because it sounded really good to me. Um, on the multi tracks, you know. What song did you do? Um, I mean, we did a whole set. I I, I, I there's, there's probably half the songs we did would have been songs that you heard, but half the songs we did were songs that never got recorded. <clears throat> so anyway, it was great stuff. It's it's another one of those woulda coulda shoulda. I mean, it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, 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 something happened at the time that they didn't put it out right away, and then in the '80s when I started to try to track down the tapes, I got a hold of that guy, um, and and I talked to him, and he said, "Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure they're in my. It was something like my wife's family house in the Cape in the garage. I'm gonna go look pretty soon." But then he did this trip, and literally on that trip, right right up, pretty much after I talked to him, in the, sometime in the '80s, I think it was, um, and probably in the later '80s. But, but he was going looking for the tapes sometime when he got back from the trip, and he disappeared on the trip, and he, and he was never found. Wow, what a story. Yeah, yeah. 
Very so, sad story. So anyway, um, so but but we, I I feel like you know. It was all a great experience. I don't regret any of it. Um, and, and 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 I learned a ton by by playing the rat for sure. So you we you and I were talking the other night and. Um and we were talking about, like, you played a Cantones, too. And so one of the things that we like to do when we do this is uh, talk about the stories about crazy stuff that happened when you were there. Do you, anything so one night up? we played at Cantones, um, and uh, we were, uh, Cantones used to have this, like, mirrored wall in the back, and they had a curtain around it. Um, and we did, unbeknownst to us while we were playing, the curtain somehow lit on fire. I don't know how it happened, <laughs> but the curtain lit on fire. And... A woman I know in the audience, her name is Rock Joseph or Rochelle Joseph. She's still around. Kind of, kind of a heroic figure to me in this situation in that she had the presence of mind. Like, no, nobody on stage knew what was going on. There was literally flames behind us. She had the presence of mind to just run up on stage and say, and, and say get off the stage. You know, just yanked us. And, and, and meanwhile, smoke starts pouring out, and the audience pours forward and people are all getting like pushing each other out of the way i think i think it got to the point where i don't think anybody really got hurt but people got knocked over trying to get out right and she went right to the curtain pulled it down and stopped the fire herself stomped it out <laughs> like like yanked the curtain down while it was in flames and put it out oh, that's wild and, we, and you know half an hour later we're, 20 minutes later we're back in there playing Oh, that's funny. So, so that's that's a Cantone story. I mean, it taught me the whole thing about the panic of a fire. Even though nobody got hurt, really. Yep. But the panic of a fire, people could have really got hurt. Um, and from that point forward, <laughs> I always, especially when I was traveling, I always, when I was on the road, I'd always go to the club. I typically go to a, or a place I'm playing, a theater or whatever it is, um, because with Laverne, a lot of times it was theaters or it was it was you know big festivals and all that i always plot out my exit i'd always remember how to get off stage and get out if if, if a fire happened wow that stayed with me my whole it still lives me still and i think about that when i go to hotels too i always plot my way out i always carefully check the fire exit because i've had a couple of incidents in hotels where not even fires but just being in a high-rise hotel where a fire alarm went off and you know it, this we were it. around when the towering inferno was uh yeah, <laughs> being and, but, made. but but if you're in a high rise and there's a fire alarm, it's not fun because mm. you're 25 or 30 stories up and you got to get down by foot. Yeah. And all it takes, and this is all, this 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 was a double lesson, but I already knew the lesson. But all it would take is when, when, when I was in a 25 story hotel and there was a, a fire alarm. It wasn't a fire, but it was a fire alarm in the middle of the night at like three in the morning. <clears throat> so everybody's going down this, you know emergency uh stairs you know the, the the back door stairs and and it's a packed it's going really slow and i'm thinking jesus this is really a fire we might all be dead now because it's going so slow and it's it it literally is like a half an hour and i'm thinking something's wrong i get up to this person who is literally handicapped and and, and can't and can't go and i'm like Nobody thought to carry you on their shoulders. You're going on my shoulders. And, 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 and we went, you know, it's, it's just like, what a lesson. It's like, how many people could die because nobody would think of picking up somebody and carrying them? That was funny. So, no, well, it's not funny. It's Anyway, all those kind of things 
teach you lessons that, you know, the, the lessons are good for the rest of my showbiz career, really, you know. Yeah. So I'm always careful to make sure I know my way out of a hotel or, or out of a, if there's a fire or any kind of emergency. You know, we should we should talk about is like, uh, I don't think we even touched on it yet. The Marshalls uh, yeah. are the Marshall family. It's not the Partridge family. It's yeah. not the Cowsills. Like I said, there were eight kids in the family. I was the third oldest, um, and Kenny and Kevin were the fifth and sixth. So who's in the band? And who plays what? Me, Kenny, and Kevin at first, and then it was Ellie. Ellie was the youngest, um, so Ellie joined in '79. Okay. And and then we played till '81. Um, we sort of semi-formally, informally, and then ultimately just out of gigging, got back together. We we never broke up because we're family. We still played at parties and stuff, um, and occasionally did a gig for a benefit for somebody. But um, we, we, we sort of really started playing again about 15 years ago, playing gigs, to the point where, before the pandemic, we were doing, you know, 15 or 20 gigs in a year, maybe. You know, summertime, wow. summertime we'd play every weekend almost, so, you know, two or three times a month at least. Still? Yeah, before the pandemic, yes. As the Marshalls. Like we, 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 yeah, we had about, you know, you know we had every, uh, at least one, a once-a-month gig all through the summer in, in, in this year that all got canceled. So yeah. that's there's about ten gigs right there we already had canceled, but we also would usually typically play about four or five different outdoor events and stuff in the course of the summer. And you play too. Marshall's material? So I'm, yeah, we don't play strictly Marshall's. We do a lot of covers too, but we we, we probably play yeah, we play several every night. And depending on the on the situation, sometimes it's about half and half. What do you what do you what kind of music do you cover? Because you guys really do have great harmony. So oh, mostly old stuff still. We mostly do '60s stuff. I mean, tons of Beach Boys and Beatles, all that kind of stuff. But we also would do like Fleetwood Mac, and you know, like like I mean, a lot of '70s stuff, rock and roll stuff. Um, we even did Ramones covers at one. You know, we, we used to do uh, Hey, I Want to Be a Boyfriend. I love I'm that song. I'm thinking the lyric, Hey, little girl, yeah. I want to be a boyfriend. Yeah, we we even did that one. So, um, so 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 yeah now, and now it's kind of you know i always want it to sound good and we always want to still be professional but it's kind of an excuse to hang out with the family too you know you yeah. know what i mean so that's that's all that's all part of it to me now you know so after the marshals you said well, that's 81 is when you stopped like playing together on a then when did when did you just do the rock and roll uh, starting in 83 okay and what's that, the full and, name of the band barry marshall and the rock oh, and robbins okay. rock and robbins were the two singers that jonathan had touring with him and he named them and then jonathan uh, one, paley no jonathan richmond jonathan richmond it, it, oh. so jonathan richmond and the modern lovers had two female singers for about three years and that was who and, were that was that beth was harrington my and... sister ellie and beth harrington okay um and they ultimately joined up with me after they stopped touring with john with jonathan and then still i think ellie still sometimes toured with jonathan even when she was she had joined the band with me so that band then went on to to uh, to do a whole bunch of you know great gigs and all kinds of recording and stuff. And the sound changed too. Why don't we talk about that? Because the Marshalls, based uh, this is based on my limited knowledge, but uh, the Marshalls were very harmony based, very sixty sounding. Yeah. And then by the time you move into the Rock and Robins, when I was listening, even some of the even some of the Marshall things start taking on a different quality. And we were talking yeah. before, it's sort of like a Marshall Crenshaw, like you said. Um, like the jangly guitars I heard and a few of the other uh, things that were definitely not like 60s kind yeah. of things. And then even a little bit harder stuff. And even like you're, uh, you're getting a little wilder too well, towards I was the doing, end of the I Marshalls. Was, I was doing, I, 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 the way I see it is when I, when I went on my own and I was the front man and responsible for writing almost every song, I started write, I, I started working a little bit more in the soul R&B era. That's the way I would think about it. 
So I, I, I'm still using 60s and 70s influences, but they're kind of soul R&B. I mean, actually had a pretty big influence from Prince at the time in the 80s there. Um, you know, not that I would in any, in any fantasy compare myself to Prince, but I was influenced by him. So, so I, I, I ended up doing, you know, quite a few, uh, I, you know, I had a horn section and, and we had backup vocals on every song, but not as much harmony in the same way. So this is a song that I heard um, that I think was just great, and it, I wrote in my notes here. It could have been a hit. It was called "Do the Stand," and I think it was it's you funny, and Beth. It, it's funny because because um, I only put I, I started my own YouTube channel called Wicked Good Music. Yep. Uh, about a month and a half ago, and 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 I I really did it then to put all the Christmas stuff out for Christmas time because I never put it out before, and it was it had all been around, and a lot of people remembered it fondly but I put it out for that reason. But then I started putting all this other stuff up. And I can't tell you, I, I think six or seven different people have commented on that song saying that song should That's have been a hit. That's a great song. It should have, yeah. it really was a hit. And I said, if even if you guys didn't do it, if you gave it to like a R&B group Hall and that was huge, you could have sold that, yeah. Hall, yeah. And, yeah. Hall and Oates would have been a perfect fit too. And I do the same vocal thing. Like they, they typically, they very typically, Hall and Oates and Squeeze both did this. They sang an octave apart. Yeah. They had one guy sing the melody, and, and then one guy sing the melody an octave higher. So the same note, but an octave higher. So I did that with myself on that song, and I did that in quite a few songs in Barry Marshall and the Rockin' Robins. Yeah, folks, um, uh, look that one up on YouTube. It's called uh, Do the Stand. Yeah. It's uh, Barry, is it you I, and I felt, Beth, right? Yeah, yeah, written by Beth and I. Yeah, And I felt like, I felt like the message was timely even now. I think it has a good message, actually. It's a kind and of what's a it about? Song. Just to tell people. Standing up for yourself and for others. Do the stand means, you know, it's, it's a dance that has no steps. <laughs> you just have to be yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about some other songs that you did, Liz, and, other, and which era is this from? She's only fat in her mind. That's from the same era in the 80s, 83, 84. Rock and Robbins. Um, yep. And, and, and that, um, oh, by the way, that's, that, 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 those two recordings were both produced by a guy named Steve Katz. Yep. Steve Katz was in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Founding, you know, Al Cooper and Steve Katz founded Blood, Sweat, and Tears and the Blues Project before that. Um, and uh, so, and Steve also produced the most successful Lou Reed albums. The two live albums and Sally Can't Dance. Those are the biggest successes commercially. Rock and Roll Reed. Animal? Rock and Roll Animal. Steve oh, Katz produced that. it. Yep. That was my introduction to Lou Reed. That was his idea to, to do the live album. And, with, with, you know, and, the, and Dick Wagner and uh, Steve Hunter, the great guitar player. The greatest intro to a, a live concert ever. You can yeah. just practically see Lou Reed walking on the stage on that one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Steve Katz produced those songs. She's Only Fat in Her Mind what, what, was kind of about an idea... Uh, based on re reacting to the horrible um, commercial images that women are already always assaulted with, so part part of it's lyrically from Beth and me uh, about uh, um, the, the concept is. Um, uh, 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 and, and by the way, that's the era of rock video. So of course we did a rock video. We did a 16 yeah. millimeter film, which I'm threatening now to dig up because I have a three quarter inch ta uh, ver tape version, which was professional 
at the time. Yep. So it probably still looked good, you know, um, in terms of at least quality-wise. But um, so so it's it's it, it's it's a it's a woman who's who's bombarded in the, the the protagonist of the song is a woman who is bombarded with commercial messages to lose weight and 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 and, and tries to figure out a way to get get out of that syndrome um, that's what it's actually about yeah it's a good song so, and then so at one, one point in the lyrics they go you don't don't have to be a cosmo girl vogue and glamour shouldn't be the whole world yeah <laughs> and, I, and i reference uh rembrandt's gogan i think i can't agree meaning 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 you know the great painters generally painted women that were more full-figured than women in uh, in the era of our lifetime. Yeah, Titian and all that. For yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. I met this girl. Looked like the trick out of bed. She said, I've gained some weight. Don't compare me to the So there's another Steve Katz one there that's really good too. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was Rick Berlin wrote that with you. Part huh? of it. Yep, yep, yep. I I took an idea from a song that Orchestra Luna did, and I and, and this is after Orchestra Luna uh, wasn't uh, was was done. He was on to other bands, um, and that I remembered from Orchestra Luna. I said, Hey, could I write something around that? And he said, Yeah, sure. So we I did. That one I would say is influenced by Prince. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And by the way, that stuff tone. only came out on cassette then, so it's kind of cool to have this around. I, I'm probably going to put together a, a CD release of all of that stuff. I've already done that with the Marshalls, too, and, but the Marshalls are now recording another um, release. But um, I'm also going to um, put that 80s stuff out, and I'm also going to put a, even a CD release of the Christmas stuff, the best of the Christmas stuff. What's um, you said that you just started? Um, you started the YouTube channel. You, I know you're doing a record now. Yeah. Um, what's behind? Is this pandemic fever or is this? Um... No, I mean I was I was hitting this, uh, the last the last three or four years. I just realized 
you know, I, I've been talking, thinking about doing a record of, of my own for years. Um, I produced a ton of records, and I'm like, I got, I got to do my, I got to do my own record or two or three. So, so I'm already, I've already done, I've got one 15 song one ready to come out in April. But I'm already like I recorded two songs last weekend. I'm recording another couple songs this weekend. Like I already got another album, uh, you know, in progress. So I'm 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 in a bit of a renaissance in my own life. I think. You know? Yeah. When Artistically. You, you're right. And you, know. you when does school go back? Two more weeks. Uh yeah. School school goes back next Wednesday. Um and it's online for the first two weeks. Okay. And then it's half in person, half online. Oh, okay. So yeah. you're, you're going to actually be going in. Yeah, well, yeah, I, go, I think I can do the the two classes I, I'm doing uh, once a week on this. It's on the same day. Yeah. Okay. But but I'll probably end up in there two days a week. I have a lot of stuff I do. Um, but anyway, the, the musically speaking, and I'm definitely on on an upswing. I would say. I mean, I've I've, st I've stayed in it all the way through. I've always gigged on some level with you know various levels of bands, um, but I've I. Producing, I worked on a very high level for the last twenty years or more. You know? See, let's talk a little bit. So, I feel like I did anyway. I mean, I yeah. made records in other countries, and I, you know, um, I, I even made records that were hit records in, in their countries. Um, you know, which doesn't make you rich, but it definitely pays your way to do it. You know, you know? that's great. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with some amazing people in my career. One of them is named Danny Solbert. He's a Cape Verdean artist from Cape Verde, but mostly lives in Portugal. I made three albums with him. I'm going to start working on a documentary on him, and uh, I wrote this song with him. Um, and it, 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 a lot of my songs tend to be about my own personal experiences, even though I don't know it when I'm writing them. I'm usually thinking about somebody else's experiences when I'm writing them. Then when I look back, I go, "Jesus, that was just as much me as it was her or him or whatever." Anyway, so this one's called "She Blew Me Off Again," and it's not what you think it is. It's she blew me off, then he blew me off, then the boss blew me off. So. Friend, 
funny I so last night I was looking at some of the folks that you produced and um, when you were talking about uh, videos I uh, I put a couple of Johnson crew uh, videos on and, the, and the, they were I mean it's really it's got to be from like the early 80s and they've What's got the this whole the like uh, they're all space themed yeah um, every one of them seemed to be space themed space cowboy was a yeah, big, yeah space cowboy that was, was the one that, that was an enormous hit I mean I think he sold two or three million of them And then yeah. with the Johnson Crew, there was another one that was yeah, something Yeah, I, I played a hit, on I a, a Johnson Crew record. I'm on a, I'm on, I'm on a whole album I'm playing guitar and several songs on, on a Johnson Crew. I, I, I was very good friends. I'm still good friends with him, but I haven't seen him in a long time. But, but I was very tight with Michael for easily, I would say, about 12 years. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I recorded with him a lot. I did a lot of different recordings. I worked on, speaking of Prince, I worked on an Apollonia record. And, and this is in the era of Prince, too. Uh, we did a 12-inch version, uh, a long version of uh, the, these boots are made for walking with Apollonia that was in Purple Rain with Prince. Yeah. You keep saying you got something for me. Something you call love but confess. You've been a mess where you shouldn't have been a mess Yeah, and I did a bunch of, I, I, I typically sang or played on a ton of recordings with him. 
Um, we recorded some of the stuff with Laverne there. We did this movie Yeah, soundtrack. why don't we talk a little about Laverne Baker, too? Yeah, so... In, in, and how you got involved with her. Yeah, in 1989, um, actually it was in 88. 88, um, I, got, I got hired by Andy Paley to help him produce uh, some songs on a movie soundtrack he was working on. He had to do like 18 songs in three weeks in four different countries and in, in, about, in about 10 different cities. Um, and, and so... One of the ways he did it was he, 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 he had me subcontracted to co-produce uh, like three of them um, in Boston. And then he had somebody else do some in L.A. And he traveled around and, 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 and put them together with them, you know. But they prepared them. You know, they cut some of the tracks. And then he came and did the vocals in the mix. So I ended up working on this movie soundtrack called Shag the Movie. Came out in 89, I think. Yeah. That would have been a lot, right? Yeah. And and um, I did it. That's how I met Laverne. So Laverne and Benny King and Seymour Stein was, um, you know, kind of behind the idea of having a duet with Laverne and Benny King. And, who, and they had had a, an R&B hit of a, of a duet in 1960 or 61 called How Long. Oh, no, I'm sorry. How Often. How Often. Um, so they did, a, they did a duet on I'm Leaving It All Up To You. It's on the Shag soundtrack. And um, Laverne sang a, a remake of her great hit that Laverne Stoller wrote called Saved. I used to smoke, mm, mm, I used to drink, mm, mm, I used to smoke, mm, drink, and dance the hoochie coo. I used to smoke and drink, smoke and drink and dance the hoochie coo. You might know it from Elvis. Elvis did it in his comeback special in 68. Elvis covered, I think, eight different Laverne songs over the years. Really? Yep. Yep. And... Always said she was great, so LeBron was fine with it. <laughs> I used to smoke, I used to drink, I used to smoke, drink, and that's the hoochie coo. I used to smoke and drink, smoke and drink, and that's the hoochie coo. Um, and and uh, I think she had even met him once, somewhere along the line. But anyway, uh, so Laverne and Benny, and when Benny also did a version of Every Day I Have to Cry. It's a period piece movie, takes place in 62. I think, it, I think it's right on the heels of Dirty Dancing that that, that movie was made. Um, it was called Shag? Shag the movie. Shag the movie. Because they found out in England <laughs> that, that Shag meant something else. Exactly. It's a dance. The Shag was a dance in, 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 in Myrtle Beach, so in, in South Carolina, in the beach culture of South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, like Virginia Beach to, to Myrtle Beach, there's a beach culture that had this sound. It's called beach music, but it's not surf music. It's R&B. It's soul music. So Laverne and Benny were both stars of, of beach music. So they love, to this day, there's people down there that, have jukeboxes in bars that have all like R&B from the 50s and 60s in the jukeboxes. So anyway, um, we were doing these three songs. So I got to work 
with these two great singers, and it was a fabulous experience. And I, you know, became pretty friends with both of them uh, in the course of doing it. But Laverne, I stayed in touch with, and I and I, I convinced her to do a whole comeback, uh, um, partly by getting, I pitched her to do a song in the Dick Tracy soundtrack, which I uh, became aware was in the offing, and Madonna was going to become the musical director when she became the star, when she got hired to star in the movie, she was going to be in charge of the music, which meant that Seymour Stein was in charge of the music with her, because that's the record label she was on, Sire Records. Yeah. So, in a sense, Madonna <laughs> was all of our bosses um, for this movie soundtrack called Dick Tracy. So I, I got, I pitched the idea of Laverne doing a, um, so the concept of Dick Tracy's music, at least, was all 30s sounding music, 30s music, but all original new songs for it. Right. So uh, Andy Paley got a bunch of songwriters that he had worked with in the past, like me, uh, and, and, and a couple of, uh, a lot of other people around town uh, here. He was already living in L.A. at the time, but he still had a lot of contacts in Boston. And, and so uh, uh, several of us wrote sev uh, uh, some songs in that soundtrack, including me. So um, And that ended up becoming... Probably the biggest money-making one thing that I did in the music business. That song's made me probably, I don't know, over 20 grand for sure. That, that, that's an original song? Yeah. I wrote it with Doc Pomus, a legendary songwriter. The guy that wrote oh, yeah. Viva Las Vegas, Save the Last Dance for Me, This Magic Moment. Doc Pomus. What's, the name, what's the name of the song that you did? Slow Rollin' Mama. Slow Rollin' Mama, and Laverne sang it. That's right. That's right. I, I wrote it with Doc Pomus. I wrote a few songs with Doc Pomus. Became, became very good friends with him for a couple of years there. Um, and was kind of, kind of, I think, getting to be a regular songwriting partner of his. Like we met several more times and wrote, worked on uh, on other songs. Um, but anyway, that one, that one definitely got in the movie and, and that and soundtrack, and that helped. Um, so that also was enough to get impetus to get her back uh, to the states. Uh, she had been living in the Philippines for 20 years. A long story. Oh. Running a club, uh, running the NCO club in in uh, Subic Bay uh, wow. for 20 years. So so she came back. I helped. I helped to do. I did some live shows with her. Then she got offered to do a lead in the Broadway show called Black and Blue, which she did for a year. And when that show ended uh, in 19, the beginning of 1991, we went on tour and we toured for the next. She had the bug again. We we toured for the next seven years. Yeah off and on, and, and toured all over the world with her, played countless great festivals, played the Montreux Festival in Switzerland, played the Great North Seas Festival in Holland, played a whole, played about eight, nine festivals in France. It's played, a long way from the rat, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, well, it's a different world. Yeah. Um, but it was great. And, and, and in the course of that gig with Laverne, which, you know, really lasted for me altogether, counting recording about seven to eight years. What years were these? 80, 89 to 97. Okay. Um, really started in 88 with that movie soundtrack, so about eight and a half years. But anyway, um, in the course of that time, I probably played with or met and hung out with almost half the people I ever idolized in music. Right from Cab Calloway, I met him. Wow. I didn't play with him, but to BB King, I played with him, hung out with him, met you know, like had a great time, um, and and I mean just countless people. I, I, I can't even begin to to tell you all the people, but 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 uh, you know, Benny King and Laverne were an example of that. You know, like and then 
because I was with Laverne <laughs> and the musical director and basically band leader and stuff, that, that put me in a position to all these people that grew up idolizing Laverne and all these black people who's, she was a huge part of their music growing up, um, that all of them I got to meet and hang out with, you know, so it was fabulous. Um, she, you know, Laverne just did everything you can imagine, you know. It's Second woman in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So I did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with her. You know, we played the, the induction dinner. Really? I was in the same mic with Bonnie Raitt. It was pretty good. <laughs> wow. And, and um, right after we played, you know, so playing with Paul Shaper's band and, all, you know, all kinds of great stuff. I mean, I played with Laverne. I played with that band about six times, I think, all together. Now, uh, the, the latest iteration of Barry Marshall is now you teach at Emerson, but you don't teach music. You teach film? Mostly in film, yeah. In film. I started out teaching music business stuff there, and I, and I was going to get into recording stuff there, teaching, but they kind of drifted away from their, they, they definitely drifted away from a music recording program into a sound design program, meaning sound for film, basically. So, sound and a little bit of music for film, but they don't do a music recording program anymore. So, you know, I, I basically, it, it, it's one of those things, like I did enough writing about film when I was young. Like I was, I wrote for the real paper. I wrote re film reviews and I wrote sometimes uh, music reviews and sometimes theater reviews. I did enough of that in the in, in the 70s that I knew that period stone cold. So I, I, I worked my way into it. Uh, I, I've been teaching at Emerson uh, part-time for 20 years. So over, the, over time, I started to figure out, well, I have a background in this kind of, you know, I could probably teach film history. And I did. I worked my way into it. Um, you know, I, I had written about it a lot when I was young, so I had just enough credential, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's funny that your uh, your buddy Tim Jackson, who you used to play yep. with, is also yep. he teaches over at BU, and he's also a documentary filmmaker. And, so. and he worked his way into filmmaking, right? Correct. So when I, I worked with him, by the way, over at another school called the New England Institute of Art for close to twenty years, and and he, interestingly enough, never never gravitated towards the recording side. He, right from the get go gravitated towards the uh the film and, and and video side and and interestingly enough i would use him on sessions sometimes while i was at, at new england institute of art because he was around yeah um and he was a, he's a great drummer oh he's a know? really good drummer yeah, yeah. so I, he he was the drummer in barry marshall and the rock and robins you know oh i did not know that yeah 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 i saw the one clip but i didn't know if it was just you guys doing a gig together or yeah no, was... no no he played oh, yeah, oh I, I interesting played a, from between 83 and about 87 i played a lot of gigs with him a lot of gigs. Um, he usually had at least one or two other bands going on at the same time, at least. Well, he still plays. He's played in for years in the Band of Time Forgot. <coughs> Band of Time they, Forgot. Yeah. Was and that started probably at the tail end of Barry Marshall. That started in the late 80s. But anyway, uh, Tim also played with me with Laverne. He, he went on a six-week European tour. He played all, a lot of those festivals in France and Switzerland and everything. Oh, that's... And Larry Ludicky, that was also in band at the time, forgot played with me in Laverne. What did Larry play? Larry plays organ. Okay. Yeah, and piano and any keyboard. Um, I actually, believe it or not, Larry Ludicky was also in the Sidewinders in 1973. Oh my God, it's amazing. So, what's your biggest? Uh, you know, what do you? What's the best thing that happened to you in the music industry? I, without a doubt, working with Laverne Baker for sure. Yeah. Um, 
because I, I you know, she was a, a great enough singer and a great enough artist that no matter what happened, if I fell down on stage and didn't get up, it would still be a great show. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what happened. So it made the job of musical director and band leader great job. You know, and plus, you know, working on the level with her, we had a level that we could hire great musicians too. So I oh, always yeah. hired the best players I could find. And, and, and I had players, to this day, I still have friends in L.A. And, and San Francisco and New York that I hired originally to play with Laverne, to tour with Laverne. So, you know, if I record in those cities, I can always, I have, I have a little network in those cities. I was actually, last summer, I was going to try to do a record at this great studio near San Francisco. And, I was, and the two of the San Francisco musicians that I played with a lot in, in San Francisco, on the West Coast tours, um, I, I hooked up with last December, uh, a year ago, December, before the pandemic, and we were planning on it in the summer, but obviously that all fell through. Yeah. But uh, but I, I'd probably still get together with those guys because I, I went to their gig and they're still playing great and everything, you know. Um, yeah, that's one of the surprising things about this whole thing is how many people stayed with it for the life, for the whole lifetime, you know what I mean? And it's not about making money. It's about no. doing it for the art, doing it for the love of the music and all that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's doing it because you have to do it almost, you know. I mean, I, mean, I you know, I, 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 I will admit that sometimes I do more than other times, but I'm never not in it. You know, I'm always in it in some way. You know, I'm always making records or, or playing gigs or doing something or songwriting or whatever. I'm always, you know, somewhat in my head of doing it, you know. I, but I definitely, I would say in the last... You know, you know, probably in the last three months, I've been actually more productive songwriting-wise than, than, than normal. I've been working on a lot of songs. And you think that's the pandemic, or you think it's just you're hitting that? Probably, yep. probably the age and the pandemic, because I've reached the age where I really want to get things down. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, being morose about it, but, you know. Realistically, huh? you're very young. If Seventy. I, if, if I get more than, if, if I hope so, if I get more than, uh, what's the word? Uh, if I, if I, you know, I, I always said I had the ambition. I'm going to make it to my 90s. Well, it, it, now I'm thinking about I might try to get past 100. You know? <laughs> but I'm hoping to be playing music for at least another 10 or 20 years. You know, who knows? It, it, you know, not not many people have gone have have. have they used to think that nobody in rock and roll would stay in it. it, it you know, even like people like the Rolling Stones make jokes about this all in the, the time. In the Who, I know. I just the saw Rolling the Stones Who, in the Who a year ago. Say, we thought we'd be out of this by the time we were 35, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, 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 and even the Beatles at the time would say, oh, yeah, we might do this for another few years. They yeah. didn't know how, how it was going to go. But, but the Rolling Stones, for sure, they, they set out to do it for a lifetime, and they—, and they and they took as their models people like Muddy Waters and, and, and Howlin' Wolf who were yep. doing it into their 60s and 70s. I saw Pine Top Perkins once, and I think he was 88 years old when yep. I saw him play. Yep. Cab Calloway was, was 90s. Ed Burks. It wasn't even like a headline. Cab Calloway show. was still gigging in his mid-90s. when He died at about 96, I think. Yeah, he was totally brilliant. Yeah. So, Barry, one of the things that I wanted to go back and make sure that we touched on was uh, you did a lot of producing, and you did a lot of producing with uh, – with you know, with big folks, but you also did a lot on the more on the local scene, like you said, the Nervous Eaters and uh, and Willie Alexander and some other yeah. folks. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, your experiences? I mean, it, it was a great experience. Part of it was from the Christmas uh, projects because there's three albums, each one 
you know, some songs repeated, but I, altogether I probably did 35 Christmas songs, three albums. Um, and many of them were, were original songs. The Neighborhoods wrote a song. Lee Harrington, the bass player, wrote a song for that Christmas album. What was the name of it? Uh, the Christmas I Recall. recently got played on Carmelita's podcast, uh, the uh, Bay State Rock, um, like the day of Christmas weekend or whatever. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so working with these local bands, it taught me a lot and, and great experience. I worked with Willie on that. I worked with Barron's Whitfield on that. Worked with, of course, Wolf and Amy Mann, but also uh, other bands like uh, Adventure Set and uh, uh, Down Avenue that were big bands in the 80s. Um, and, you know, Down Avenue, I became friends with Dave Doms and Charles Pettigrew, who's this great singer who ended up in Charles and Eddie, who had a big hit record called Would I Lie to You in the 90s. Um, anyway, a lot of them were, were real good collaborations, I felt. You know, like I, I felt like I, got, I brought something to it, but I also thought they were themselves. Do, now, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like when so, you're producing somebody like that, you don't want to change them. You want to bring out whatever is great about them. And you knew Willie from the 70s anyway, from sure. the Rat and like that whole scene, the Boston Absolutely. scene. And did yeah. you know any of those other folks? Did you go back with them? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I played Eaters. gigs yeah. with every yeah. one of these, these yeah. bands. Like, 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 like I played gigs opening for the Nervous Eaters several times, even in clubs. In the, like we played it with the Nervous Eaters at Grover's in Beverly a few times. Um, but I played with the Hoods. I played with uh, a lot of those bands, yeah. So, so I knew I knew almost everybody like that, uh, to, 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 you know, more than just casual friends. Like hung out with some somewhat and often worked with either on stage or in the studio. Um, Willie, I did a, a bunch of things in the '80s because uh, he was a couple times he was in between bands. So I said, oh, well, you know, you want to come and do some gigs with, with with Barry Marshall and the Rock and Robins, and he did. We we we, we probably played about I don't know seven or eight gigs. Where we we do one place I remember we used to do it we did it several times was Jacks in Cambridge. Oh yeah, Jacks. I love Jacks. Um, and we were a regular band of that that we had a circuit. It was a different circuit than than the Rat circuit by that point because the Rat had gone more hardcore and I wasn't going in that direction. Um, nothing against that, but you know what I mean. I wasn't I wasn't going to do that. Yeah, I checked um, out of the Rat at hardcore too. Yeah, <laughs> but I still played the Rat very occasionally. I played a I played a show as late as 1994. It was a benefit for somebody at the Rat. Um, but anyway. Um, so, so uh, Willie, we played a bunch of shows where we learned a set of Willie. We learned about eight songs or ten songs, and we played a half-hour set with Willie um, at several gigs. I advertised it and everything, and it, and it worked out really well. You know? um, I also recorded with him on other projects on that Boston Incest album. That's, I think there's like three songs where I'm either singing back up or playing or something on when Willie's, with Willie. Do you know what those songs are? Uh, 
he had a, a song that Eric Lingerin wrote called In With The Outs. And what, what else that's on that album? Um, there's a few. I mean, the song he did on the Christmas album was Santa Claus Is Coming To Town. Really? Yeah. Um, Willie Alexander and yeah. Santa Claus. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Even sing on some meters uh, recordings that were done later in the 80s. Uh, I just sang back up on about four songs. Uh, that, 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 that they're still around. I still see them on the Rick Hot records. You know, the songs that I that I sang on have come out on various records over the years. Which records did you do? So you, um, with Barrett's, that was strictly on the Christmas album. Amy Mann, that was on the Christmas album. Yeah. Um, Strictly, strictly the Christmas album. Well, if I did, I did some other stuff. I did a song on on, on a Nielsen tribute album as well as the Christmas song, um, "Silent Night" that Wolf sang. Um, a song called "You're Breaking My Heart." My, uh, all songs written by this is an album, a tribute album to Harry Nielsen. Also, all songs written by Harry Nielsen. So, Ringo's on the record. Uh, you know, not the song I produced, right. but Ringo has a song on the record. Jimmy Webb. Uh, whole bunch of great people. Steve so each- Orbit, Brian Wilson. Um, and we did, uh, I did, I produced two tracks on that album. Um, I produced a, a song with Laverne called Jump Into the Fire, Harry Nielsen song. Yep. I did a uh, song, uh, Harry Nielsen song called "You're Breaking My Heart." You're tearing it apart. So, f you. <laughs> um, that's 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 the uh, one that I did with Wolf, and and I think that came out very. I, I think I think that came out great, uh, and, and you know I think it really works. It's so, different. It's different than Harry Nielsen's version, of course. artist worked with their own producer to do and then they compiled everything on the record yeah okay yeah they didn't you didn't all go in with one producer and do the so nope. you, you produce them nope. and then they just got submitted yeah and so i even helped like you know organize like 
I, 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 I suggest it. I'm, I'm friends with a, a, a singer named Steve Forbert, great, great folk yep. singer. So I, I suggested him to somebody, and they, and, and you know, that was involved in organizing it, and 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 sure enough, he ends up he's on the record too. I didn't work with him on it, but but I but I tried to make the connection to get him on it, you know. Yep. Um, and, uh, and and of course he's he's a tremendous artist, so you know, he doesn't really need my connection, but I at least brought to their attention that he'd be a good, uh, uh, you know, choice for the record, and and, and they agreed. So. He's another guy that's been around forever. Right? Oh, yeah. I remember oh, yeah. him on, like, WCAS in Cambridge, I think. Yep. Uh, well, it, I think. I could you know, be he's, wrong. He was, making, yeah. he, he, he was in the original CBGB's world. I just missed him in that world when I was playing there because he got to, t- to New York, I think, right about when I stopped playing there. I think he got to New York at the end of the summer of 76, and I stopped playing around somewhere in the early summer of 76. Um, so he got to New York, I think, in August, and he started playing CBs by, by like, you know, I think by, by, by January, February of 77. So he was playing CBGBs in the middle of all the punk bands with just an acoustic guitar, and somehow he pulled it off. And, and, and that's how he sort of got going. Yeah. And that's not all he was doing. He was playing Gertie's Folk City and all those folk clubs too. But he became kind of a I – remember, I remember people just considered him – what a ballsy guy! He came in there with an acoustic guitar and played gigs at CBGB's right in between the Ramones. You know, you know what I mean? Wow, that's wild. Yeah, but he did that. Was he a local guy? Is he from? No, here? no, he's from Mississippi. Okay. Yeah, so I knew him because he was friends with Jonathan Richmond, and and in the course of touring, you know, things happening, I, uh, you know, I, I I met him with with Jonathan recording one time and. I became good friends with him for for quite a while. I'm still friends with him, but I just don't see him that often now. But for a while there, I used to stay at his house in New York and everything, you know. And, and we did a lot of stuff together. Um, but he's he's a great great artist, great songwriter. Yeah. Uh, but he's on that album. Have you ever watched a moonbeam as it slid across your window? Struggled with a bit of rain Or danced about the weather vane Or settled on a moving train And wonder where the train has been Or on a fence With bits of crap around its bottom So there's a lot of uh, bands over the years that I that I did get to work with that I, I really appreciate and 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 you know I hope I brought something to it as well. Um, you know I should probably tell I, I didn't really tell the Rick James story fully. I should probably do that story because that's a great rat story. Okay, go so back. Rick that's James, okay. Rick James, um, and this is in about '86 I think, and 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 uh, Rick James I met, and 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 I and, and I. I had a conversation with him, you know. He, he was he was kind of amazed that I because he was semi in disguise, like he had his all his hair under a hat. Um, but I just I figured it out, right? And I just said something <laughs> to him about music, and he started talking. And then we started talking, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I you know I, I said I was the singer in a in a band and blah blah blah. And and and, and now were I, you guys at the Rat when you're having this conversation? No, no, no. 
no, no, no. This is way before that. Uh, you know, at least a few weeks before that. Okay. So the thing was, he was drying out in McLean's at the time. Oh. So, and he was there for a fairly, you know, for the Proctor few, House. <laughs> he was there for a few months, right? Yeah. So I I made arrangements to meet with him and give him a, a, a tape of my music. So I did. And he said, you know, I think you you've got something, and I'm interested in seeing you live to see how it works live. Could could you put together a gig in the next couple of weeks? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely I'll, I'll put together gigs. And I put together a gig with you know within a few days, at the Rat on short notice. Like Tim Jackson uh, was playing with another band, and he got me on the same bill just as a favor, and we ended up playing. So Rick James came to the gig, and. Um, Coincidentally, nothing to do with it. You can see this on YouTube. Dana Hersey. You know who Dana Hersey was? Oh, God, was? yeah. Okay, so he had that Channel 38 uh, show. The movie show, right? Yeah, he had a movie show for years. But he also had this crazy kind of like walk-around talk show where he'd walk around to different places and interview people and just you know create a little commotion in different places. And one of the nights he happened to go to The Rat was the night that Rick James came to see me. So... He's just getting to the, at one point, he's just getting to the rat. And the guy, the bouncer, doesn't want to let him in because because Rick James had, had told me to tell the club, you know, no cameras or no any of that shit. I said, Rick James is going to be here to see me, but but don't have anybody taking taking videos of him or anything because they'll walk out, you know. And so Dana Hersey shows up with a whole crew, you know, with in those days, you know, not huge, but bigger than those cameras let's say you yeah. know and and, and um it, it, you know in bright lights and everything at, at the door and and so what you can see on youtube is there's a video of dana hersey talking to the the the, the guy who's the uh, the door guy not mitch it wasn't mitch that night but um he, he's explaining no no we can't have any cameras in here and somehow or other they bowl their way through and they walk down the stairs and the first person they see at the bottom of the stairs is me and, and, and I go just like this. I go, oh, no. <laughs> like, like uh, yell, I yell at them, oh, no, because I'm, I'm pissed off because I think Rick James is going to walk out the door, right? And then they just brush right past me. But you see all that uh, on the tape on the right. You see me say, oh, no, and they brush by me. <laughs> As it works out, they didn't get any footage. Like, like, like they did get them out of there before Rick James came in. So they didn't get any footage of Rick James, but it, it, it was it was that camera crew might have jeopardized the whole thing. We played a set, and and right at the end, oh, now, right, now, by which the way, band so, is, this is the this is the Rock and Roll. Barry Marshall and the Rock and Roll. Okay. So, uh, at the at the uh, I should get I should go backwards a minute. So Rick James sends his you know security guy in to meet me and walk him in. So so I told him to, I told him to go to the back right. Back door and come in the back door because that would be easier to get him up to the front of the audience and or, or the table I had set, and uh, so I go out to the limo and he's out in the limo and back, and and it's one of those, and of course he's with a beautiful blonde, right? <laughs> he's Rick James. <laughs> Rick so, James, damn it! So, so, so uh, you know he, he he just goes, okay, you got a table set. For me, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whenever you're ready, you don't have to do it now. He goes, no, I'm ready. Let's go right now. So, how soon are you going to play? I said, probably five or ten minutes at the max, right? So, he comes in, um, and, and you know, we sit him down and played the set, and it was fabulous. I mean, I thought it went very well, and he seemed very much into it, you know. Um, and by the way, I should point out, 
<laughs> for anybody that's thinking about Rick James, he was stone cold sober the whole, every time I met him. No question about it. He was in dry out mode. Yep. You know, so otherwise I wouldn't have been even doing this. I wouldn't have been, I, I wouldn't have been around. Uh, it wouldn't have happened if he wasn't uh, sober. I mean, I'm not trying to say I have a strict rule about it, but I'm just trying to say chances are he wouldn't even have been in Boston if he hadn't been sober. You know what I mean? So anyway, as it turns out, he probably he, not the best place for him to go to um, hang out is the rat. But he, he wasn't uh, drinking or anything. Yeah, he just yeah. had soft drink or whatever. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> anyway, at the end, he and he's given me, you know, pretty good encouragement from the audience too. So so uh, yeah, so of course I'm all psyched and it went well, I think. And 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 uh, afterwards, he it, it, you know you know he, he comes right up to the stage and he and he goes, hey man, can can, can somebody lend me the bass? And I and I go, yeah yeah yeah, Let, yeah come on up, you know. And the, the, a couple of guys from the Rat run up and just saying, we're already overtime. We're going to get close. <laughs> so, so Rick James wanted to jam with us, but we couldn't do it. Oh, uh, no. Like the Rat shut it down. Oh, God. Uh, uh, but, you know, I understand those things. I mean, I'm not going to get mad about it, but, you know, it was, it was disappointing. But he was all set to, to come up and play a song or two, you know? Well, that's funny. Yeah. He goes, we'll just play some old R&B. You know it. You know, you know? I said, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. Oh, that's a wild story. Yeah, yeah. So I stayed in touch with him. He liked the tape I gave him. He liked the music. Um, and, and, and he was talking about one point about producing me in the studio. But then the next thing I know, you know, like a couple you know, when he was going to get back in touch, and a couple months later I hear he's all fucked up and doing crazy shit again. So yeah. he, he did have a roller coaster of a, uh, of a ride like that. You know, he went in and out of drugs a lot. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a shame. Like a lot, like yeah. a lot of people in the business. And you know, I would never, I would never pretend to know what's going on with with somebody really. You know, like in that situation, unless you really know them well, and even then, you don't always know everything that's going on. You know, but but just the fact that he was interested in me, and he and he was a guy of such accomplishment and talent, and 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 he produced hit records by other people oh, too. Oh yeah. So so. That was a that that was a pretty big deal for me, I, and I was pretty excited about it at the time. How could you not be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's the rat. Right. The, the rat. The night that Rick James came to the rat. Oh, that's you know? funny. Nothing radical happened, but it, just the fact that he came there is pretty radical. You yeah, know? I would say that's pretty rad. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to thank you for coming in today, Barry. Thank it you, was Michael. Great.
Thanks for listening to Rat Tales, Boston Rock Stories. Rat Tales is produced and directed by Lenny Scaletta and Mike Hoban. With a huge thanks to Medford Community Media in beautiful downtown Medford, Massachusetts.